Hello and thanks for listening. I'm Jude Hill and in this special series of podcasts I'll be in conversation with church leaders and invited guests. During 2021 we are marking the centenary of key moments in the partition of Ireland, the establishment of Northern Ireland and the changes that resulted in terms of British-Irish relationships. Throughout the year the leaders of the Church of Ireland, Catholic, Methodist and Presbyterian churches along with the President of the Irish Council of Churches have been reflecting together on the response and responsibility of churches on issues of identity and belonging past, present and future. As part of that work, they issued a joint statement on St. Patrick's Day. In that, they acknowledged that some may struggle with the concept of shared history when it comes to this centenary year, but they want to focus in on the reality of living in a shared space on these islands and how to make it a place of belonging and welcome for all. So as part of their contribution to the task of building that shared space, church leaders have developed this podcast series where they will discuss with their guests some of the identity-based challenges that have impacted our society in the past and continue to undermine social cohesion. They'll reflect on the challenges of leadership in this context and share their hopes for the future. Just to let you know, this conversation was recorded towards the end of the summer. With all of that in mind, I'm joined by Reverend Dr. Sar Yambusu, who's president of the Methodist Church in Ireland, and Bishop Sarah Groves from the Moravian Church. Hello, and thank you both for joining us today. Sar, you took up your role as president from Reverend Dr. Tom McKnight, who was the one who obviously signed the St. Patrick's Day statement with the other church leaders. But what's been on your heart for this centenary year in terms of the spirit of conversations and engagement that you wanted to see? I think conversation is always good in any situation that we find ourselves because once you are open to conversation you might actually learn things about yourself and about another person. That process of engagement might actually lead you to approach that person or the issue from a different perspective because you're growing in that conversation as, as you learn and listen to the view of the other person. So I think conversation is, is really good. And, uh, and that's one of the, of the things that warms my heart about this uh, statement by the church, the St. Patrick's Day statement, but also this year of the centenary in which we are in. I think as human beings, it doesn't matter which society we belong to, immediately we stop talking to each other. Even in our own families, there's a problem. But sitting and sharing and having a conversation around an issue that maybe bothers all of us or that we are not very happy with or comfortable with, I think that kind of relationship can be beneficial for everyone in that relationship. And have there been conversations that you've been involved in this year that have sparked you with new thoughts or, or brought new perspectives um, in, into your life? Conversations not to do necessarily with the centenary, but conversations around the whole idea of sanctuary, of creating a space of welcome in our homes, in our churches, in our societies, in the wider community. And places of welcome and hospitality and respect. And I, I have had those conversations with colleagues of mine in this country and outside of this country. And when I think of those conversations, given the context in which we are this year, here in Northern Ireland and also in the Republic of Ireland, I think the whole idea of hospitality and opening a space where people are welcome can be of real benefit to all of us. 
I've also had a few conversations with um, the other other church leaders around the whole topic of the centenary and this year. It's very interesting, especially when you look at the, the history of it. I have been thinking, for example, in those conversations of St. Patrick's. Now, St. Patrick's case is really interesting. Having experienced slavery in Ireland and coming to Christ, going to England, escaping Ireland, uh, basically, but returning to Ireland, not to argue, not to be in conflict with the people, but returning to extend a hand of welcome, to engage in conversation, and to bring to that conversation his faith in Christ. I want to believe that looking at this country and having lived in this country for a while and looking at all the churches around, I want to assume that we are all Christians in this place. And perhaps there is something that we could learn around the whole idea of conversation and creating space and uh, respect and mutuality. I think we could learn from St. Patrick. And I, I want to suppose that St. Patrick was the way he was because he had actually encountered Christ. No one can really encounter Christ and not want to extend a hand of fellowship across borders. There might be borders about ideas or land, or physical borders, or cultural borders, or Christian borders, etc. But essentially, the life of Jesus was about crossing borders. He was crossing borders all the time. And often when we cross borders, we are challenged to think a little bit more about ourselves, our assumptions, uh, the things we believe in, the things we think of other people. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking here, for example, of Jesus and uh, the Canaanite woman, uh, a woman from another territory, another country with a different culture, and yet saw something in Jesus and wanted to have that thing and had to challenge Jesus to actually cross borders. That's probably what St. Patrick's was about. And Sar, you have um, a fascinating backstory in terms of crossing borders as well, obviously um, brought up in Sierra Leone, becoming an Irish citizen, moving back to Sierra Leone um, as well. How do you feel that that whole backstory um, affects how you approach this year that it is here and the, the unique complexities of, of history and I suppose your vantage point on that? Mm. It's very interesting in terms of a backstory I speak to you as somebody who comes from the continent of Africa. And I would say maybe my first experience of the outside world was in the partition of Africa. And interestingly, that partition did not take place in Africa. It happened in Europe at the conference in Berlin in 1885. And nobody in Africa knew about what was happening to their continent at that time. And yet what happened in Berlin actually did impact so much on the history and the culture of Africa that we are still really feeling that impact. So, so that's one in terms of a backstory. There is also this whole thing about the Christian missions. You could argue that especially the modern missionary movement came from the West to Africa. And often for me coming from Sierra Leone, a lot of the cultural baggage of Victorian culture was brought by the missionaries to my people. So in that sense, in order for me and my family to become Christian, there were things about our culture that were looked down upon that we had to give away. 
or give up on. But the people who expected us to give up on our culture and our customs and our beliefs came with cultures and customs and beliefs that were not necessarily Christian. But they, they could not distinguish between the two. So, so in, in the sense, my identity has been formed by the colonial context, by the missionary context, but also within my own context, ethnicity and tribalism is quite important. Um, a lot of times we value people in terms of where they come from, which ethnic group they belong to, which tribe they come from, what language they speak. And that unfortunately even affects the church in my own context. I'll just give you an example. When I left college in Sierra Leone, after I've trained to be, to, to be a minister, the first church I was assigned to was in the city. And in the city, most of the people who are there in the big churches are civil servants, etc., and have this whole background of uh, their ancestors being slaves and returned to Sierra Leone, and they thought they were much more civilized and more important than us who came from the country. So I was assigned to one of these churches, and it took me at least one year before they could accept me working in that country. And that's my own country. That's my own people, the same color. And their reason was my name was provincial. They could not even pronounce my name. So that's my experience. But even now, in order to become, say, for example, president of the Methodist Church in Sierra Leone, the debate, the discussion around choice is often influenced so importantly by which part of the country the person comes from. Do they come from the Creole tribe, which is the Western, uh, Western area tribe, Freetown, one of the churches in which I worked, or do they come from the provinces? The backstory, I think, speaks so much into the experience here in Northern Ireland in terms of uh, conflict-based identity. I think often that's what feeds most of the relationships that people engage in even at the political level in my own country. I mean, I, mean I, I, I say to people in my country, if you put a baboon as the head of your party, it doesn't really matter. People would still vote for that party because that, that, that baboon comes from a particular tribe, and that's the tribe they belong to. So I can, I can, I can see resonances of that here in Northern Ireland. I, mean, I studied here, and now I'm back here to work here. And I have listened to a lot of conversations, and sometimes I actually chuckle when I hear them because and if I don't want people to be embarrassed, I just go somewhere else and have my chuckle there and then come back, <laughs> you know. Um, sorry, you've invited Bishop Sarah Groves into the conversation today. Why were you keen to, to hear from Sarah and what, were, what was the, the theme that you really wanted to explore together? Well, I know Bishop Sarah Groves is from the Moravian Church. And for anyone who knows the history of the Methodist Church, our founder, John Wesley, benefited so much from the Moravians. Uh, I would say often when I'm even talking to Methodists who are talking about Wesleyan ideas, I sort of, again, I chuckle. Was it actually a Wesleyan idea or did he borrow it? And where did he borrow it? But that idea of self, of borrowing, I, I think is so important because that's what it means to live in the world and in society and in community, because even if we are not told to borrow something, we look at somebody else's way of doing things and we are warmed towards those ways. And then we want to take something from what they are doing. So I am 
inviting Bishop Sarah Groves today so that we could share in this conversation and see how that might help my own view of myself as a person but also as a Methodist and from her own perspective of being a Moravian and her own experience in the service of the church and the community. Sarah, in terms of your own positioning and thoughts around the, the centenary of partition and all the complexities of that, what, do, what does this year mean to you or how are you navigating it? For me, it's a point in time. It's part of a thread of history. I came to Northern Ireland in 2011, just before the beginning of the decade of centenaries. And I don't think you can separate this year off from all that's gone before. Um, I thought I knew a bit about Ireland before I came here, north and south. <clears throat> Got here and realised how little I knew and the subtleties and the complexities of it. So coming at the beginning of the decade was a really good experience because I could see how the threads, the various threads, wove through. So for me, this year isn't the end or the culmination. It's the end of one part, and in one sense, and the beginning of another whole thread of events. So there's so much to learn. I think what I've discovered is that a hundred years actually gives us a chance to think of it as history. And that's a really good thing because you can suddenly say that happened then, what happened, why did it happen and how does it shape us moving forward. And the centenary year has been much better than I'd expected because there's been no real trouble. There has been a lot of reflection and there's been a lot of really interesting history put out by various people. The um, Lisburn City Museum has done some wonderful talks. You know, if people have wanted to reflect on their history, there's been a lot available to learn from. And you mentioned you both actually have got that unique perspective of um, making a home here. Mm. Um, and I suppose your, your unique reflections on that. How did you experience welcome here and how did it fuel your, your passion to create a more welcoming space for other newcomers um, who are arriving here? I come from a deep rural background, so coming to Ballymena, which is where we live, was no strange thing. You know, it was it was really lovely to be surrounded by fields and cows and the rest of it again. I think the culture here is perhaps more reserved in other places. It takes a while to get known and be known and trusted. And there may be reasons behind that um, reserve. But I think welcome and talking is just so important. I really liked what Sarah was saying about hospitality because it's when you have the time to sit down with a mug of coffee with somebody and just sit and share, that's when the truth comes out. That's when the real feelings are explored. That's when you see somebody as an individual loved by God rather than just a person or somebody of the other. And what then, in having those conversations and journeying that yourself, what are some of the challenges we face as a society in terms of becoming a, a more welcoming um, shared space where um, all identities um, are free to, to be as they are? I think first, making the time to talk with each other and for us as churches, putting ecumenical work at a much higher level than it is in the local levels. I'm continually surprised by how little 
importance local church leaders put on ecumenical events and meetings. It's a great sadness that it isn't top of our priorities, given how split the society is and the fact that children are educated separately. And so often people really only come together when they get to the workplace. For me, it seems a real priority that ministers, particularly ministers, priests, spend time together getting to know each other and our congregations getting to know each other so that we hear each other's stories, we understand each other's perspectives. Sarah, just to bring you in, in in response to some of that, what Sarah was saying there and that the separation of um, communities and separate identities, what, what's, what's your, some of your observations around that? I'll take a look, a look at congregation see one of the churches that maybe I have served in and uh, you go into the place and thankfully well I'm saying thankfully because probably because I'm an immigrant but our churches have different faces today from other parts of the world and if you go into any of those local churches uh, in terms of divisions I mean you would immediately spot them especially as a minister you're not just spotting them from the different colors of skin in the congregation, but you're also spotting them when discussions are taking place as to how we do things in this place. And you would suddenly start hearing ideas and words and voices that say, well, this place belongs to us and this is the way we want to see it go. But then what happens in that kind of conversation is that we are probably silencing 75% of the people who belong to that church because that's not where they are from originally. So this split thing and segregation and conflict and division is not just something outside in the wider society, but it is experienced in the local congregations as well. Now, sometimes people may not want to accept that, but I speak as somebody who's worked in those congregations and I know what I'm talking about. Uh, there are congregations where there are people from different parts of the world and who come and they just warm the benches or the seats on Sunday, but who have not been really offered the real choice of being a leader and making decisions in that place. And that's, that's, that's difficult to see especially in the household of God. There is a guy called Wolf, V-O-L-F, who has published a book on exclusion and embrace. And he gives us several ways of embracing people without smothering them. And openness is one, he says. Be open. Open your arms. Let the person fall into your arms. Because you can't fall into somebody's arms without opening your own hands. And then hug each other, but not so tightly that you kill the other person. And when that hugging is done, release them to be who they want to be. And to me, that's a very good way of suggesting how we should welcome, how we should share with people. So we, ha we have to be hosts, invite and welcome, open our arms, hug each other, but not to assimilate people, not to make them become like we are. 
because after the hogging, we should release them to be who they are. But we have to rest in the assurance that once that embrace and hogging has taken place, the person that we are releasing is never going to be the same again. Because we have imparted something to them that they like, they have imparted something to us that we like. So that person and us are set on the path of growth. And if that happens in any society, in the church, the wider society, in terms of embracing each other, crossing borders again, taking that risk, because we might end up not only changing the other person, but also changing ourselves. Sarah, just to bring you in at this point, that challenge around becoming a more open society, you've been involved in interchurch peace work. Where do you think we are at in terms of just those conversations and a bit more freedom of, of movement and an increased sense of dialogue? I think we're in a, a much better place than we have been. The fact that the, the church leaders can get together, can make statements, that the statements can be heard is, is just wonderful. So I don't want to knock that at all. I think there's much further we can go. It really troubles me that sectarianism is seen very much along Catholic and Protestant lines. And if those labels belong to us as churches, then we have to own that as the problem, that it's our problem that we, there is that kind of divide. So for me, I think where we need to go now is to go much further into the idea of building relationships. And my personal feeling is that we ought to move towards making a covenant between ourselves. Covenant's a, a biblical word for a really deep promise between people or between people and God. And have perhaps a covenant between the church leaders in this place where they pledge to be together, to pray together, to do everything that they can do together and to make that a public commitment. Now I know that it's really quite difficult for some churches to do that but unless we own the fact that sectarianism actually comes from us, comes from our histories, comes from our theologies and that it's now our place to try and step over that and see that we are all Christians working and worshipping together. As Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon that we should be seeking the peace of the city so I would love to see us moving towards a place where we have an, an active yearly covenant between the church leaders and that, that growing at a local level too. So that you've got an example set from the top. And I think the way the church leaders have been working together recently has been fantastic. But if that could be seen to be more tangible and inspiring that then to start at the bottom as well. And do you sense that uh, church leaders um, or churches are anywhere near to making a move like that? I think some churches are. I think it will take a lot longer in other churches and, and other churches will, will never do that. But till some of us start working towards a really positive relationship that's visible. Um, it was a shame that St. Patrick's Day statement wasn't taken up more because it's such a wonderful statement. But I think it was a bit crowded out by other news that happened on the day. But then um, a couple of weeks later, I think the church leaders made another statement that was really picked up by the press and by the television. And that was really seen as, the, as them working together on common issues. So what do you think of that idea of a real public statement or commitment from churches and an owning of sectarianism within church walls? What sort of difference do you feel that could make? I think it would make a huge, huge difference. I mean, 
we are leaders in our separate churches. And because we are leaders, there are many in our churches who actually trust us and who look to us for leadership. And if, if we do cooperate, if we send the message, not just by word in the pulpit, but through the way we engage with others and encourage our parishioners, our congregations to engage with others, I think we can have a huge amount of influence. Sar, as the first black leader of one of the, the main churches in Ireland, you obviously have a very unique perspective in terms of openness and, and what you can bring into the situation. Where do you feel the churches here are at in terms of diversity and moving forward with that? That's a very interesting question. In terms of diversity, there is a lot more diversity in our churches now in the pews than there was, say, in 1985 when I first came here to study. It's partly because of our doing, because the people who have come to live in Ireland are people who our missionaries engaged with many, many years back. And they've come and then they're coming back into their, if you like, mother churches. So there is diversity there. In terms of diversity of leadership, I think we have a very long way to go yet. It's one thing to invite people in your home, the church, but it's another thing to give them permission to shift around the furniture and put it in the place that they want the furniture to be. And in that sense, I think we still have a long way to go uh, in the church. Is conversation again the key here? Or is this just a conversation that's still not happening enough? No, I don't think if it is happening enough. Now, having said that, again, from experience, sometimes I have found that the new Irish are quite reticent to take up positions of leadership. And maybe that's not for us to wholly blame them because it's, it's a cultural thing, isn't it? If you are not sure of the way things should be in a particular culture, it doesn't matter what skills that you have, you, you have, what talents you have, what capabilities you have, you are a little bit shy and afraid to take up positions of responsibility in case you mess it up. So maybe in a sense, in the churches, we also need to encourage people. And perhaps as leaders, that's what we are there for, so that we are able to spot what talents people have, what capabilities they have, and encourage them. Approach them on the one-to-one -one level and say, I, I see you have this, and you're able to do this and this. P would you mind deploying these skills in the church, becoming a leader in this aspect of the church, etc.? And we will give you a hand as you do it. I think if that encouragement happens, it will go a very, very long way in terms of including people in the realistic way in our communities, in our churches. And at the political level, it has happened in, in, in way of a few councillors from immigrant communities. And uh, even at national level in politics, we, we've got a few, very few, but maybe if we engage people and, again, as I was saying, encourage them when we have discerned and identified what gifts they have and encourage them and support them in that way, that's the way we are going to make this society more sort of representative in, in its leadership, in the church, in the nation as a whole. Because immigrants, we all know from the study of history, immigrants come with a huge amount of skills and talents and knowledge and wisdom. And for us to find a way of tapping into that, for the benefit of all of us, I think would be a wonderful thing. Mm.
Um, Sarah, what are some of the signs of hope or life or, or progress that you're sensing in some of the conversations that you're having that give, that give you hope for this place? Recognition that we share, whatever our background, we share common issues. The coming together of Christians on ecological issues of climate change. I think that's fantastic. I think Christians working together in the area of racism and segregation, that we're seeing that the big issues are actually not whether we're Protestant, Catholic, Methodist or Moravian, but the issues that are facing the world. And I think that lifting our eyes I think also the fact that people are coming from different cultures and you come from a different culture and you see more of the culture that you have brought with yourself but and the culture that you have come into. And so I think travel and people moving from one place to another, that's a fantastic thing because then you don't just assume that your culture is normative and that your assumptions are right because you go to another place and you see that they see things differently and they do things differently there. So I think mixing of cultures is so helpful. Mm -hmm. Again, that openness and diversity, mm -hmm. actually. Um, and Sar, just to finish with you then, in terms of your own hopes for this place, um, as you look around and the work you do, what are you seeing that gives you, gives you hope for the future? May I say, I see human beings. And the point I'm trying to make is that when, when you see a human being, you're seeing agency. And you know, it doesn't matter what context people are in, they are going to deploy what they have got to make life better for themselves and often by the grace of God also for the wider society. That gives me a huge amount of hope because agency means power. And if it means power, if you have a hundred people in one place, you have a hundred bundles of power, if you want to put it that way. And that gives me hope because those people will challenge whatever is there in different ways, uh, not in terms of protest, but even just in terms of being just silent and observing because presence is very important. I remember the time when missionaries started going into my society and immediately they appeared because their skin color was different. A conversation already started. People were asking, why are they different? and they start asking questions. And the missionaries, of course, also had that conversation without seeing anything. But from that basic kind of conversation in terms of presence, a huge happened in terms of change, changing society, changing people, changing people like me sitting here, coming from a very, very remote place of the world where there's hardly, every time I go home, I say to myself, when would I go back to civilization? And yet it happened through presence and conversation and openness. And in this world today, people ask questions. We can't hide anymore. And so I'm very hopeful mm -hmm. for change. Very, very hopeful. Because the world has become so small. Very, very small. Thank you, Sar and Sarah, for your thoughts and reflections and to you who are listening. This podcast series was supported by a grant from the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council. And just a reminder, this episode is part of a series of podcasts with church leaders as they reflect personally on this centenary year. So do check out the rest of those chats found on all the usual podcast platforms. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>